Hey, thanks for dropping by. I'm Steve Shepard, and this is the Natural Curiosity Project, the place for stories that matter. January 22nd. Verifications on the mini-subs are still keeping the technicians busy. Today, the divers will establish a base camp on the island to study the turtles when they come ashore. Anybody who's been alive for any part of the last 50 years knows that voice. It's Jacques Cousteau, of course. Cousteau, who, with his colleague Émile Gagnon, invented scuba in 1943 in the process opening the underwater world for everyone to see. He is the reason that I studied marine biology, why I became a master scuba instructor, why I co-owned a diving business in California, and why I wrote a novel that centers around diving. I have all of his books. I've read them all many times. Cousteau and his team explored every corner of the world's oceans, but the place beneath the surface that called to him more than any other was the coral reef. I've spent hundreds of hours of my life gliding over coral reefs, worming my way into deep channels or descending along their sheer vertical faces. There is no place on earth where the profusion of life is as obvious as it is on a reef. Where they come close to the surface, the colors are indescribably varied. And the diversity of life, anemones, urchins, nudibranchs, tube worms, moray eels, sponges, tunicates, endless varieties of fish, their movement and colors sparkling the water like a disco ball. And of course, there's the coral itself in all of its magnificent diversity. Staghorn, elkhorn, brain, sea whip, lettuce leaf, Carnation, bubble, gorgonian, sun, fox, organ pipe, mushroom. All of these are varieties of coral. They're all stunning, and they're all in danger of dying. But before we get into that, let's talk about what a reef actually is. A coral reef is a community of different species of corals that are also interspersed with sponges and soft corals, hard corals, fish, you know, it's it's almost like the trees of a forest. You know, you can't have a forest without trees and you can't have a coral reef without coral. That's Ken Niedemeyer, the chief scientist and founder of an organization called Reef Renewal USA. We're going to meet Ken and a few other members of the team in this episode because the work they're doing is more than important. It's existential. They're working on coral reefs that have bleached because of the warming oceans, Reefs that are in danger of dying, and they're bringing them back to life. You can have a fire run through a forest and burn the trees, and the forest is going to look a lot different for a long time. And that's kind of what's happened in much of the Caribbean anyway, where disease and bleaching has run through the coral reef, killing most of the corals. And now you still have the structure, but it's dead. It's like burned trees, and they don't attract as many fish. They just don't do what they're supposed to do. Corals are funny. I mean, the whole system is inter intertwined and interlinked. A lot of the planktonic larval fish and even invertebrates, they can hear the sound of a live reef and they're drawn to it, the clicking and snapping, but they can also smell it. So a fish larvae can smell live coral and will change its direction and swim towards that smell. And when it finds it and gets close, it'll settle down and live there. So if it doesn't get that smell, and it doesn't hear that sound, it just keeps drifting on by. 
So we, we're running into the problem where we don't have a lot of live coral. And so it starts this cycle that goes down. Fish and uh, invertebrate larvae aren't attracted to it anymore. So they drift on by. So the population starts to decline. And, uh, you know, it's just a, a repetitive cycle that doesn't recover. So let me take a couple of minutes here to talk about what reef bleaching is. Corals bleach because of a breakdown in their environment, usually the result of climate change. One indicator of climate change, of course, is global warming, and that includes the oceans. A temperature change of as little as two degrees in ocean water can cause corals to get stressed and then bleach and often die. Now, corals are colorful because of the presence in their tissues of microscopic critters called zooxanthellae. The zooxanthellae, which are little dinoflagellates, live within the coral in a mutually beneficial symbiotic relationship, each one helping the other survive. These little dinoflagellates, which are photosynthetic, produce nutrients that feed the coral. The coral polyps, in turn, provide the zooxanthellae with a protected environment and the nutrients they need, carbon dioxide and water, to carry out photosynthesis. But when the environment changes, if it gets too hot, the coral gets stressed and it expels its photosynthetic partners. As the little dinoflagellates leave, the coral fades until it looks like it's been bleached. If the temperature stays high, the coral won't let the little dinoflagellates back in and the coral will die. Ken Niedermeyer explains. They have a symbiotic relationship with a type, a special type of algae that pretty much only lives in the tissue of corals. And that algae, as it's exposed to sun, will produce food for the coral. So the coral is actually fed by the algae and the coral provides a host for the algae. So the algae feeds the coral, the coral is the host, you know, that's where the algae lives. When it gets too hot for a sustained period of time, not just overnight or, you know, one hot day, it's, it's, it's a sustained period of time. Apparently the algae, and it becomes an irritant in the coral. And sometimes there's even toxins produced by so much light and so much heat and the coral just can't handle it. So it expels the algae from its tissue. And when it does that, the coloring of the coral, which is the algae is gone. So it goes from maybe a brown or a, a green color to clear, the tissue of the coral is now clear. And so what you see is the skeleton of the coral, which looks like it's been bleached in, in Clorox <laughs> and turned bone white, but it's still alive initially. It'll have a, a thin layer of tissue growing over the skeleton but the problem is the coral has now lost its main food supply. And they, they most of these corals that live in shallow water, they're dependent on that symbiotic relationship. They've kind of lost the ability to sustain themselves adequately by just catching plankton and things like that. So when they bleach, the, the clock is ticking. If they don't say it simply unbleach <laughs> within a month, then they're going to start to die because they're going to starve to death. So it's a, it's not always toxic. You hear about bleaching, well, a lot of times they recover, but not always. And they're weakened as a result of it, and so they're more susceptible to disease over the next year or so because they're weakened. And just, just because they recover doesn't mean they're not still in a weakened, compromised situation, and it's, uh, it's, it's hard on the coral. It's easy to conclude that the death of a coral reef means nothing more than the death of a coral reef, but it's a lot more complicated and impactful than that. Let's just take the coral that is the structure on, on the reefs. That's Tom Myers, one of the principals at Reef Renewal USA and the head of their education and outreach programs. 
these reefs are barriers against storm surges and hurricanes that can greatly impact the, the coastlines. And again, as you said, Steve, so much of it we don't see. It's underwater. The classic barrier reef it does what it's, the name implies. That's Ken Niedemeyer again. It's a barrier to waves. And so a lot of the coastal areas of the Caribbean or even, well, especially Southeast Asia and wherever coral reefs are, they, they a lot of times line the, the windward side of islands, but they create these barriers out there that break the waves and take all the energy out of the wave. And so all you get through is water rushing through the reef, but not great big waves. And that protects shorelines, but it also protects things that you, you develop there. It gives, you know, lagoons, places for fish to, to live, you know, it creates a new ecosystem and it provides habitat for the fish, which is really, to me, I look at that as the most important thing. It provides habitat for fish and invertebrates that the, that the reef needs. Before we get too far into the science behind reef renewal's efforts, let's meet the team. Yeah, my name is Tom Myers. I live in Jericho, Vermont. Spent 20 years in academia, now working with Reef Renewal USA, which is a nonprofit organization uh, located in the Florida Keys, where we do coral restoration work. Tom and I know each other because we were both involved in a local college here in Burlington, Vermont. When I learned what he was doing with Reef Renewal USA, I asked him to tell me the story of the organization. Reef Renewal was really started in 2017, 2018 by four of us who were really involved in the work in restoring our reefs and everything on the coral reef. So predominantly what we do is we have a series of coral nurseries, essentially underwater gardens where we grow coral and it's the stronger genetic strains of coral, more resistant to bleaching. So we've been able to call those coral broodstock of coral grow them out and essentially like planting in a garden you cut sprigs and we cut we fragment the coral in different pieces and the different types of coral of a staghorn elk horn brain coral boulder coral just to name a few and essentially plant them on the reefs at certain locations throughout the third largest barrier reef in the world the only in the united states is along the florida coast so when I met Ken, probably 2007, 2008, I was just deeply impressed with his commitment to restore the reefs. That's Mike Echevarria, the president of Reef Renewal USA. He practiced law for 28 years before turning his attention to the ocean. And just it was an all-out passion. He, he converted his for-profit business, went into created a not-for-profit because he believed it was the right thing to go do and needed some help. So I joined him at the Coral Restoration Foundation. As its chief scientist, Ken Niedemeyer is the heart and soul of the organization. I was really enamored watching the Jacques Cousteau stuff in the 60s. And uh, that's kind of what I wanted to do. I thought, this is, that's, that's mine, you know. <laughs> so as soon as I could dive, uh, I think I was 14, 1969, I, I got certified and started diving and uh, I already was into freshwater tropical fish. So I started collecting saltwater tropical fish. And uh, by the time I was, you know, 15 or 16, I had a whole bedroom full of aquariums. So uh, my, my passion for the ocean was, you know, early and has been prolonged. So I haven't uh, never wavered from that. Of course, most of the Cousteau stuff was that at least the stuff that interested me was uh, diving in, you know, coral reefs and all the fish and stuff like that. 
anyway, I went to um, college in, at uh, Florida Atlantic University, got a degree in marine biology, got out of school, and there was no jobs. <laughs> this was in the early or mid-70s. The jobs that were there required a PhD and all kinds of experience, and there was the pay was horrible. And I thought, you know, I can't do that. First of all, I'm not qualified. And then second of all, I can cut people's lawns and make more money than these guys. <laughs> so uh, I became a commercial fisherman. I actually put my way through college collecting tropical fish and lobster to sell and pay my way through college that way. So once I got out, I worked at a place on Big Pine called Sea Camp for three summers. And the, the year I got out of college, I worked there. And then I went to, to commercial lobstering for a while got into mariculture, and then started my own business, collecting fish and shipping them all over the world for about 30 years. And during that period of time, I really got to see the underwater world of the Florida Keys. And I dove all the way from the Dry Tortugas up to uh, Biscayne National Park. So I did a, a lot of diving and saw a lot of things. And what really started to alarm me is in the 80s and 90s, we started getting coral diseases and the sea urchins died and coral bleaching. And the beauty that I saw when I was getting into it was starting to die. And by the end of the 90s, it was really looking bad. And I thought, we got to do something about this. And I'd look around and, you know, you'd see all these people, you know, scientists, you know, doing what scientists do, but they're studying little tiny things, you know, and writing a paper on it that nobody ever read. My bent is not to study, it's to do. First of all, I got into trying to restore sea urchins, the long-spying sea urchins, which I kind of didn't really like, but they were essential. And that led me into growing corals and uh, eventually into developing a restoration program that started coral restoration in Florida. As is typical of all startups, especially those that fall into the non-traditional let's-make-a-difference world, there was plenty of passion and energy at Reef Renewal USA, even way back in the beginning. And as Mike Echevarria recalls, it came off of Ken in waves. Anybody who got close enough to Ken early on, he would recruit him. So there was a real feel of the grassroots side of the fact that he would bring friends and neighbors to come in and they were doing work in the very, very beginning. And I think that's important to continue. Because I don't believe there's enough money to be able to pay for all the restoration that we need. And our goal, uh, as well as the innovation and the passion, is to attract communities and let them be able to own this. Dive shops, cities, areas that they're going to go out and say, this is our own. Now, the Florida Keys basically is very diverse. And each area, although it's the Florida Keys, is really distinct communities. And so we're going in each community understanding the dynamics and figuring out what are the stakeholders that need to be involved to make this their own, and then empowering them to do the work as opposed to hiring us to do the work. And it's just a, it's a subtle shift, but it's a way we think that we can go back and facilitate and actually get more coral restoration done at scale by bringing in the communities. We don't believe that this is complicated work. It's work, but we have simplified it such that it, Ken Niedemeyer doesn't have to go do the work anymore because we've scaled it in a way that a volunteer on their first dive with us can be productive. So what's the work that Mike's talking about? Here's Tom Myers again. Let's say we're going to go out and we're going to 
first do some cleaning of the coral. We have some coral that we have fragmented and cut that are in our water tanks on the boat. Let's get a series of, you know, getting the boats loaded, going out to the reef. We have three main nurseries, uh, one off the coast of Tavernier, one off the coast of Marathon at Sombrero Reef, and then another main one at Lou Key, which is one of the iconic reefs in the Southern Keys. So you'll get on the boat, go out as a diver. You'll have a dive master or nursery manager who will say, this, these are the things we want to do. It could be, if you're volunteering, it could be anything from going down to cleaning with our tile brushes and brushes and cleaning the trees, cleaning the coral. It could be going down to fragment some of the coral pieces that we will use then to outplant. It could be mixing the cement on the boat taking that down and planting on, on certain parts of the reef. It could be going and installing new anchors. Let's say you get blown out, it's a windy day. So there's other projects that are on land. Again, cutting more coral, going to you know the, the different work zones where we're cutting coral, where we're putting coral into uh, different tanks. It could be building trees. It could be putting these ceramic or cement plugs that look like a mushroom cap. It could be putting those plugs into a tray of plastic mesh. There's many, 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 many things that, that could happen in a given day. So there's many different different things that we can we can do. Okay, let's dive into the details. Okay, sorry, a bad pun there. Tom referred to trees in his last comment. Here's Ken explaining how the actual process of growing and planting the corals works. The goal is to uh, grow corals and replant them on the reef. and We've chosen to grow corals in an offshore underwater nursery. There's people that grow them in big land-based systems, and then they take them out and put them on the reef. But we didn't have the money to do a land-based system. And it's really difficult to do in the Florida Keys anyway, because land is so expensive. But the ocean was free. I can get a permit or I can lease bay bottom or you know ocean bottom from the state of Florida or get a permit from the federal government. It, it's really cheap. So we developed a way to build nurseries offshore and grow the corals out there. Now that's been an evolutionary process and it's still evolving into something better than it was yesterday. <laughs> We've evolved to a point where the corals are growing on what we call midwater floating structures. So they're not on the bottom and they're not at the surface. Everything is in the middle of the water column. We developed this idea of a tree nursery um, I developed that in 2010, and that's actually gone all the way around the world. And probably the, the main nursery structure being used around the world now. And who knew that was going to work? <laughs> uh, but we developed that in 2010, wrote a paper on it. It looks like a tree. It's floating in the middle of the water that's like five feet high, got arms coming out of the sides, and corals hang from those arms. And, you know, who knew the corals would grow hanging from monofilament lines? It's just a lot of stuff that you just try sometimes and you, know, you get ideas, you see somebody else doing something, and then you modify it. And so anyway, we developed this tree nursery idea to grow corals in the middle of the water. And it turns out it's very resistant to hurricanes. I'm going to pause Ken here for a second because I want to paint you a picture. Corals thrive in moving water. It carries nutrients. So growing them in the open ocean is the ideal nursery for them. So the Reef Renewal USA team has come up with two different growing structures that support the young corals in the nursery. The first one is a piece of polypropylene line that hangs vertically in the water between a float at the top and an anchor at the bottom. 
The rope is braided, which means that divers can pull open the braid, insert pieces of branched coral like staghorn and elkhorn, and the poly fibers then hold it in place so it can grow. The second structure is the tree that Tom spoke about. It's a vertical piece of PVC pipe, that's the trunk of the tree, with fiberglass crossbars about every 18 inches going down the pipe. Hanging from them on fishing line are pieces of live coral, the brood stock. There's an anchor at the bottom that keeps them in place and a float at the top that keeps the tree vertical. So we get to regularly get hurricanes and tropical storms here in the Florida Keys. And our first uh, iteration of a coral nursery was concrete blocks on the bottom or some other structure on the bottom. And hurricanes would just destroy that. It would pile it all up and kill everything. So these uh, tree structures actually sway back and forth in the wind and the waves, and they do great. <laughs> so, you know, they're the go-to thing. So we get permits to put, you have to get a permit for the nursery itself. And there's a whole bunch of permits you have to get. And then you get permits to collect the corals. And I have to say, you know, where I'm going to get them and what kind of coral and how much of it and what I'm going to do with it. And so there's, you know, there's a whole slew of permits you have to get. And then we go out and say we make a collection of, you know, this particular coral. That's the only time we'll collect from that particular coral. And sometimes, like for a, say, a brain coral or a star coral, we'll get a, an underwater grinder. We'll just cut a little piece off the edge on the bottom. And it might be not even the size of a piece of paper. But we used to put them on a little credit card. So you put this like quarter size piece of a coral on a credit card, a blank credit card, and we'd put a name on the on the card. And he'd mount that on these trays. And then that that little quarter-sized coral would grow out and spread and cover the whole card within a year. So then we'd bring that card back to shore, kind of flex it, pop the coral off the card, cut it into a whole bunch of pieces, put another quarter-sized piece back on the same card. And then all the other little pieces we'd mount on these little uh, ceramic discs. You know, the coral would cover the ceramic discs, and then we'd take those out and plant them on the reef. That's how we're growing like the brain corals and the star corals and the, the corals that form great big coral heads. And then the corals that don't, like the branching corals, you can just take a piece of that uh, coral, you know, like a, a long branch, and just cut it into a bunch of pieces, hang it by a piece of monofilament. You put a, a piece of monofilament around it, and then you hang it from one of those tree branches, and it grows like crazy on the branch. <laughs> So that's the growing process, but eventually the time comes when the coral has to be moved from the nursery onto its final home on the reef. When the corals are ready to be harvested for planting on the reef, we'll pick them off the trees or however they're growing, take them out to the reef, clear the bottom. We're using cement now, so we just use basic Portland cement. We mix it on the boat, put it in like a bowl. So we might take this uh, 12 ounce, like a deli cup, so you went to the Chinese restaurant and we do this. We go to the Chinese restaurant and they give us wonton soup. We bring it home, clean the thing out. And so we'll take that little uh, deli cup uh, with cement and tip it upside down on the reef, pull the cup off and then plant the corals in that wet cement. And within an hour or two, it's hardening up and overnight it's rock hard and the corals grow over the, the dome of cement and then out. It's super fast, super easy, super cheap. You can get the cement anywhere in the world, and uh, it's the way to, that's the way we're doing it right now. Now, one of the things I was curious about was the degree of genetic coral diversity that Tom and Ken and Mike have been able to work with. This can be a serious concern because of the danger of creating what are called monocultures, where you have one single species living in a particular area. 
It's the same problem that the forestry industry worries about when they plant trees, or people looking to restore a prairie grassland worry about when they want to put it back in its original condition. If a single species is planted, then that single species tends to attract smaller numbers of ecosystem partners, it's more susceptible to disease, and overall is a lot less hardy, especially today when climate change is affecting everybody. Monocultures don't do the environment any favors. So I was pleasantly surprised by Ken's response. In our nursery, we have 22 species and 750 different genetic strains of coral. So we have to track and keep track of every one of those genotypes because they're all unique and they're all special. And we've, we've gone out of our way to find and collect corals from heat-stressed areas. So the corals that have survived, you know, extreme heat have survived disease outbreaks. We didn't just go collect random corals. We were very, very selective about which ones we collected. There are areas where the water temperature gets into the mid-90s, you know, in the summertime. You know, most corals on the reef would be toast. They'd be dead at that temperature. But we find the same species living in that 95-degree water. So I went to those areas and I looked for those corals you know, that can live in these extreme conditions and, you know, we're growing them. And I, you know, I'm, I'm very bullish that the corals we're collecting are, they've proven to be survivors. And I think they'll be the ones that'll survive on the reef going into the middle of the 21st century. Reef Renewal USA. Tom, Ken, Mike, and their team of volunteers are clearly doing the work of the angels here. The passion, energy, and science all make for a winning combination, but there's another piece that has to be integral to this. I asked Mike about it. We needed a vehicle to take the innovation and the passion for restoring coral reefs and the optimism for, for restoring coral reefs that Ken has and put it in an organization that is the vehicle to carry it on into the future. So my job is to be able to help the organization build something that's sustainable, that has the core values that Ken brings to the table of being innovative, being passionate, of creating a hope and a legacy for the future, but put it into an organization that Ken and I can basically build, help fund, but also attract the next generation to be able to continue the work. Once you get into the nurseries, you see what we're doing. You're actually working with us. All of a sudden, there's a revelation, and it, there's an empowerment piece for the individual to say, you know what? Life and the environment isn't that bad. There's some things happening on the reefs. They're, they're, the coral is growing again. It's coming back. When you can see change and positive change, I think that empowers individuals to be more involved. One of the things that I'm excited about is the AI prospects of what we can go do for simply measuring and monitoring the reefs. It's on the edge. We're not there yet, but we're doing a lot of photo mosaics now where we're taking lots of photographs of the bottom and creating large photo mosaics. But the software, we believe, will be able to identify the corals over time, measure the size of those corals, and then actually be able to go back and do a time lapse and demonstrate actually how much coral cover are you getting given a square area that you're working in order to have a coral nursery and a pop-up nursery and be planting on these reefs, you have to have very stringent permitting through Florida Fish and Wildlife and these marine sanctuaries. You just can't go and start planting coral anywhere, right? You need to have um, to secure these permits. We have these permits. 
So how that works with the educational pieces of universities and marine science laboratories from these universities, we now have these labs that are open for academia to do research. A lot of work in the diadema, which are the sea urchins and the different grazers on the, on the reefs that help to clean the, the algae to help foster more growth. We're working with a couple of large aquariums and for their organizations to almost adopt a reef, if you will, and to have this be this, the, the aquarium's reef where their members and their staff and with in conjunction and partnership with Reef Renewal USA, now they're helping to, to foster growth on the reefs with their research, their work, and some of the interesting pieces of that many of these aquariums across the United States have rescued coral that are in their aquarium tanks. You know, I know for a fact they don't want to maintain and keep their coral in these tanks in perpetuity. They would love to be able to get this coral back to where it came from, you know, the rescued coral back onto the reefs. So here's a new venue for these aquariums to, to start to plant this coral. And to see, I think I tell you, Steve, I mean, just to see what it looks like a year later after you've planted coral on the reef and to see it prosper and see it grow. The next step beyond that, and one that we'll partner with people to do is, can we breed those corals? Can we breed a heat-resistant and a disease-resistant coral and get a coral that has both of those characteristics? And, you know, there's a lot of progress that's been made on breeding coral now and raising coral larvae. And now the question is, you know, can these traits be inherited? Can they be passed on to the next generation? And, you know, can they be mixed? Can you get heat and disease-resistant corals? So that's that's the next step. And that's, you know, that was kind of the basis of why I did the collections I did over the last four or five years, not just to have corals that we could asexually reproduce, but to do sexual reproduction. It's not genetic engineering, I don't think. It's selective breeding, but I think that's what a lot of our corals will be used for in the next five years. I asked Tom about outreach, about letting people know what Reef Renewal USA is all about. Turns out there's a lot going on, including training and education. One thing that's really important for us as Reef Renewal USA is to educate the public, and again, public starting in kindergarten, elementary school, very early on, to educate students, young folks, about the importance of our natural reefs and maintaining and growing our reefs and how important that is for our humankind. So we actually have mobile units that will go with coral to different schools, allowing students to cut the coral and to put them on different plugs that we use. We will use a, a, an epoxy that will glue this piece of coral onto a, onto a, a, a plug that then can be uh, planted on the reef. We also rely on volunteers. So the beauty of our model is that any diver, and it doesn't have to be a diver. You could be a non-diver. There's a lot of work and volunteer work that you can do on land to help us. Specifically, if you're a diver, we have online training programs. There's a series of online training with videos and little fun quizzes and things like that, but that you will do in the comfort of your own home on a computer to prepare you for the process of, of cleaning the coral, cleaning the trees, planting, diver safety, awareness, being within a coral nursery. So that divers who want to come and volunteer with us can go through this mini training program online. So when you get to the dive site, 
you have a pretty good idea of what you're going to be doing. Of course, you'll go and be guided through and have some tutorials underwater, but essentially it's an easy start, you know, the outset to begin and to begin your coral volunteer work. And it turns out that training can be used all over the world because of the way the organization has grown and partnered with other groups. We're part of a worldwide network. So Steve, you come down, you do online training and you train and you do some some work in the Florida Keys, well, then you can work with our partners in, in Australia on Great Barrier Reef. You have that experience. So that's our design is that you're trained in one, like say just in Florida, you can go to Bonaire, you can go to Curacao, you can go to Mystique, you can go to other islands in the Caribbean, you go to, again, back to the Great Barrier Reef and work with the team over there. So again, there's never, there's never enough people to, you know, to support and then do all this work. Now, it shouldn't surprise you that the work that this organization is doing caught my attention because of my own love for diving and the ocean and everything that lives in it. As I said at the beginning of the program, I have spent countless hours floating above or swimming through coral reefs all over the place, and it's a pretty special experience. It's the closest you'll ever get to flying without an airplane. But Reef Renewal USA is doing much more than raising and planting coral and trying to grow public awareness about the need to protect and extend the lifespan of the world's reefs. They're also harnessing technology to extend and enrich the impact of the work they're doing. Here's Mike Echeverria again, the president of the organization. In my legal career, there was no digital ecosystem when we were doing it, but we created a company that basically was a translator that connected our clients and 100 law firms together to be able to move data all around. So I got really spoiled. So I've come into this world right now where they're using Google Sheets and spreadsheets. What we're finally doing, we are in fact pitching a database to be able to get started, to be able to go back and start to capture that data. We can move it into warehouses. You can start doing AI on it, but you got to collect the data in a place to be able to use that. So one of the big pushes now that we're out pitching is the ability to go build this coral restoration database. And my second pitch is I want to give it away. Once I build it, everybody ought to have one of these things, whether it's a third world country or not. But that's the reality is that's the kind of level that Ken brings. But I also bring to say, if we were serious about this, we've got to do something different. We want to give it away. So those are the two big things, again, that You know, I'm I'm still acting a lot of the the on-the-ground stuff, but that's where I'm going with this, and then going to raise money to be able to create an endowment to fund it. So what's the end game? Well, as I was researching this story, I found myself drawn back to the undersea world of Jacques Cousteau, the television program that set me on my own path many, many decades ago. It turns out that all the episodes are on YouTube, and I got sucked in. I went down a rabbit hole. All these wonderful memories came flooding back as I watched Cousteau and his team do their thing. But then, in one of the episodes about coral reefs, Cousteau said something that stopped me in my tracks. Coral reefs are as important as the Amazonian rainforest in carrying out the carbon fixing that can counteract the greenhouse effect that causes global warming. Did you catch that? Coral reefs are as important as the Amazonian rainforest carrying out the carbon fixing that can counteract the greenhouse effect that causes global warming. He said that in April of 1976, 47 years ago. We didn't listen then. Perhaps we'll listen now. I'll give Ken Niedemeyer the last word. I'm selling hope and buying time. Because if I can get people to hope and invest 
their time and energy and funds into the hope that we can do something, then we can buy time. If we don't have the funds to do some of these things that I've been telling about, I mean, like a lot of these corals that we collected, we used our own money in the beginning. For the first several years, it was just our money and our time because we really believed this is what needed to happen. You know, we just went out and did it. But, you know, there's a limit to what two guys can do. So if we can get other people to believe that there is a viable option, then I think we can buy some time. And if we can buy enough time, we just might save some of these species and some of this beauty that I have grew up seeing. I'd love to have my grandkids be able to see even a glimpse of what I saw. If we quit, there's no hope. If we keep persevering, there's hope. I see corals that have survived and live in conditions that they shouldn't be able to live in. So I know that there are corals out there that can live in temperatures way above what we have right now, you know, worse conditions that we have now. And so how many more of those can we find and can we rebuild reefs based on that? I just think there's so much we can do and I'm not willing to quit. <laughs> so how do I get people to get that hope? You know, and, and it's not blind hope. I'm very aware of all the stressors and the problems. I'm, I'm probably more aware than most people because I'm in the water all the time and I read and I'm, I'm dialed in, but I also see that there is hope. So that would be my message. Don't give up. Tom Myers, Mike Echeverria, Ken Niedemeyer, I want to thank you for the gift of your time and for telling the story of the amazing work that you're doing as Reef Renewal USA. You, your dedicated and talented staff, and your army of volunteers perform feats of magic every single day. Folks, to learn more about what they're doing and to get involved, I mean, hey, you can go down to the Keys and dive with them pretty much any time to help. All you have to do is complete the simple online course that's available to everybody at their website, reefrenewalusa.org. And the best part is, you don't even have to be a diver. But take my word for it, you want to be. Just saying. I'm Steve Shepard, the host of the Natural Curiosity Project, and I just want to take a few additional seconds to thank you for the gift of your time. I started this program because I believe that curiosity leads to discovery, discovery leads to knowledge, knowledge leads to insight, and insight leads to understanding. If you've been a listener for a while, you know that the only thing that ties the episodes together is that each one covers a story that deserves to be told, and that each story is something that you should be curious about. I hope you enjoyed the journey we covered in this program, and if you did, Please take a couple of minutes to write a brief review wherever you get your podcasts. I cannot tell you how much it means and how valuable it is to have those reviews. From my heart, thank you. And I'll see you in the next episode.